Welcome to the 10 Minute Medic, the podcast for busy paramedic students. This podcast takes one medical subject and explores it for a maximum of 10 minutes. Here's your host, Dr. Bill Young. Welcome to the 10 Minute Medic. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Young. In this podcast, we'll take a look at responding to the pediatric cardiac arrest. Pediatric patients lack the reserve capacity to deal with respiratory failure for any extended period of time and will thus progress into cardiac arrest quickly if not treated aggressively. Once they descend into arrest, the survival rate is less than 10%. Because of this, it's imperative that we're able to recognize signs and symptoms of respiratory failure, which is the most common cause of cardiac arrest in the pediatric patient, and act quickly to intervene to stop its progression. Children can be sneaky now when presenting with respiratory issues. They may progress to respiratory failure with or without intervening signs and symptoms of respiratory distress. Knowing this, the paramedics should err on the side of being aggressive in treating all respiratory issues in your pediatric patient. Most of the time, cardiac arrest occurs in adults because of a long-standing history of coronary artery disease. Now, it's rare for this to be a precipitating cause in the pediatric patient. Instead, cardiac arrest in the pediatric patient is usually brought about because of a respiratory failure issue. That's the bad news. The good news is that children respond really well to treatment of respiratory problems, and cardiac arrest can be prevented. A less common cause of pediatric cardiac arrest is the presence of untreated shock. Many times this is not recognized, and as a result, the oxygen delivery to the various organs as well as the arterial oxygen content is dangerously low. The focus of high-quality compressions during a cardiac arrest remains a priority for both adults and children. However, you should place the establishing of a patent airway along with ventilation and oxygenation as a priority that is just as important when treating children. Sudden cardiac arrest is rare in the pediatric patient, but when it does occur, it's often seen in conjunction with athletic and sporting events. Coaches and other school officials should be able to recognize when a child is in distress and notify 911 early as well as be able to provide rudimentary cardiac care, including high-quality CPR and the use of an AED. Patients in cardiac arrest are associated with a systole, PEA, V-fib, and pulseless VTAC. In children younger than 12 years old, PEA and a systole are the most common rhythm seen. On the other hand, V-fib and pulseless VTAC are usually seen in children older than 12 or those with an underlying cardiac condition. Keep in mind that the survival rate of pediatric patients that present V-fib or pulseless VTAC as the initial rhythm have a higher survival rate than those who present in a systole or PEA. The provision of early defibrillation may have an important role to play in their return of spontaneous circulation. The patient may present in pulseless VTAC as monomorphic or polymorphic VTAC, more commonly known as torsades. Torsades is usually caused by a long QT interval and the imbalance of the electric light levels or drug overdose or toxicity. We'll cover the treatment of torsades later on in this podcast. Once you've identified that your patient is in cardiac arrest, high-quality CPR is the cornerstone of treatment and has been shown along with early defibrillation to improve the chances that a patient will experience ROSC. In doing so, it's imperative that any delays in beginning compressions be eliminated. One of the primary culprits of delay of compressions is the insertion of an endotracheal tube. It's no longer acceptable to stop compressions while inserting an advanced airway. If you as the paramedic are unable to intubate while compressions are underway, the use of a blindly inserted airway device should be used. The components of high-quality CPR as follows. First, you want to push fast. 
The rate that you're targeting is between 100 and 120 compressions per minute, regardless of the age of your patient. Second, push hard. During compressions, you should compress the chest about one-third of its diameter. This is approximately an inch and a half in an infant and two inches in older children. Third, allow the chest to completely recoil after each compression. Failure to do this prevents the heart from refilling with blood and will have an adverse impact on the injection fraction. Fourth, as I stated earlier, you'll want to minimize interruptions in compressions. The goal for this is to not have a cessation in compressions for any longer than 10 seconds. Once you get an advanced airway placed, compression should be continuous with no interruptions. Lastly, avoid overventilation. Each breath should be given using the back half of your BBM delivered over one second. It should cause the chest to rise and fall and your rate should be about 10 breaths per minute. Excessive ventilation has an adverse impact on the filling of the heart leading to reduction in cardiac output. All EMS agencies should be utilizing entitled carbon dioxide monitoring for appropriate patients. The use of this important tool can give rapid and direct evidence of the quality of chest compressions as well as early identification of the return of ROSC. In my opinion, no paramedic should ever be intubated unless they have access to and are well-versed in the use of entitled CO2. This can prevent missed intubations and give almost instantaneous notice if a tube becomes dislodged during the resuscitation. The paramedic has three routes of medication delivery, although we will most likely only use two of them. These three routes are IV, IO, and via the endotracheal tube. With the advent of the IO, it will be extremely rare that you'll ever need to use the endotracheal tube route. To improve drug delivery during cardiac arrest, get your IV access as soon as you can and deliver medications during chest compressions. This will help to move the medication through the body and into the heart where it will have the greatest effect. To help facilitate this, follow each med administration with a 5 milliliter bolus of normal saline to help speed it on its way. The use of interosseous has been a game changer for EMS IV access since its introduction. Any fluid that can be given IV can be given IO. Some of the benefits of the IO route are that it can be given to any patient with no age limitation. If you give a medication IV, it can be delivered IO as well as the speed at which an IO can be established. It will generally take less than a minute from start to finish to establish an IO. The last the least preferable route of medication administration is via the endotracheal tube. As stated earlier, with the advent of the IO, this route's fallen out of favor. In addition to this, the rate at which the medication is absorbed can be very unpredictable, and the amount that it takes to actually get into the bloodstream is often less than what can be delivered via IO or IV. The general consensus for endotracheal administration is two to three times the IV or IO route. For some medications, that can result in a large volume of fluid being introduced into the lungs. Defibrillation is used to shock the heart by causing depolarization of a large mass of cells of the myocardium. The premise is to stop a critical mass of the heart from conducting to allow a natural pacemaker site to take over and convert defibrillation into a perfusing rhythm. Defibrillation should be delivered as soon as possible. While the defibrillator is being readied and charged, high-quality chest compression should continue. As soon as the shock is delivered, compressions should be resumed as the research shows that these compressions are more beneficial than a second immediate defibrillation. Airway management should never interrupt chest compressions. When ventilating a patient, do not overventilate the lungs as it causes a decrease in venous return to the heart. In addition, overventilation can cause gastric distension leading to vomiting and a potential airway obstruction. 
When using a BVM, administer each breath over the course of one second and provide just enough volume to make the chest rise. Waveform capnography is a standard for all management of airway and should be used in all patients needing ventilation. Once you've got an advanced airway in place, give a breath again over one second every six seconds for a targeted goal of 10 breaths per minute. With the placement of an advanced airway, chest compression should not be interrupted to deliver a breath. Keep in mind that depending upon the situation, an intertracheal tube may no longer be the best airway for your patient. Manageable with an LMA or a BIAD may be better. The pediatric cardiac arrest algorithm provides an organized assessment and treatment pathway for a child who does not respond to basic life support interventions. Let's take a look at the various components of each step. Once you've determined that the child is unresponsive and has inadequate or no breathing, check for a pulse, taking no longer than 10 seconds to do so, and if appropriate, begin CPR. Your chest compression to ventilation ratio for one rescuer is 30 to 2 and 15 to 2 for two rescuers. As soon as a monitor or an AED is available, analyze the rhythm to determine if what you see is shockable. If it is, give one defibrillation at a dosage of two joules per kilogram. Remember to continue CPR as the defibrillator is charging up. It's your responsibility to make sure that all rescue personnel are clear of touching the patient prior to the delivery of the electricity. I strongly encourage you to have your eyes on the patient when you deliver the shock to ensure this. As soon as the shock is administered, jump right back on compressions, minimizing the time that they have been stopped. For your second defibrillation, use a dose of four joules per kilogram or higher. You should not exceed 10 joules per kilogram. Between defibrillations and during CPR, IV or IO access should be obtained. The team leader should make sure to rotate compressors prior to the onset of fatigue. After two minutes of CPR, it's time for a pulse check. Stop CPR again for no longer than 10 seconds to assess rhythm changes and the presence of a pulse if you see an organized rhythm on the monitor. If you have any doubt as to whether there's a presence or an absence of a pulse, err on the side of caution and resume compressions. When you have vascular access available, administer one milligram of one to 10,000 solution of epinephrine at 0.01 milligrams per kilogram. Epinephrine is given every three to five minutes with no maximum dose. The current research does not provide a definitive answer as to the best time for the first dose to be given, but it is generally not given immediately after the first defibrillation as the shock may have its intended effect and convert the fibrillation into a perfusing rhythm, making the epinephrine unnecessary. As we discussed earlier, try to give all medications while chest compressions are underway as they'll help the medication to more effectively circulate to the heart. If the patient remains in persistent VFib or pulseless VTAC, you can administer amiodarone or magnesium sulfate. Amiodarone is given at the dosage of 5 milligrams per kilogram IV or IO with a maximum dose of up to 300 milligrams. You can repeat this dosing regimen for a total of 15 milligrams per kilogram in a 24-hour period. Magnesium sulfate may also be considered as an antiarrhythmic as well. Its dose is 25 to 50 milligrams per kilogram IV or IO for a maximum dose of 2 grams. If your patient presents in a non-shockable rhythm such as PA or systole, the algorithm becomes much simpler. High-quality CPR and the administration of epinephrine at the dosing regimen that we spoke of just a moment ago is pretty much all you have to worry about. Begin to review your H's and T's to review for any causes that you might be able to identify, treat, and reverse. Lastly, don't forget that resuscitation of a child is a very traumatic event for parents, bystanders, and you as the rescuer. 
You may need to speak with a colleague or a professional counselor after the resuscitation if it has negative emotional effect on you. Please don't hesitate to seek out someone if you need to. Thanks for listening to this segment of the 10-Minute Medic. We'll continue in the review of pediatric advanced life support with our next podcast and review the assessment and treatment of respiratory distress and failure in the pediatric patient. Make sure that you subscribe in your favorite podcast platform to be notified of when that session drops.